than here on Sunday morning, worshiping our holy God, together gathered at his people, by faith proclaiming Christ. We're going to open up the book, and what's going to happen is something supernatural is going to occur in the room. Uh, By the preaching and reading of the word, God promises that through his spirit, he's going to slice through hearts, and uh, he's going to encourage and be gentle and care for and love his people and call a people to himself. And so by faith, this is how we're approaching this book, and uh, if you feel comfortable, I invite you to pray with me. God, you're holy, and that statement enough is enough to stop and marvel at and over for eternity. Thank you for allowing us as your people to come before you. Thank you for giving us your word. I pray that your word would move forward in power this morning and expose the beauty and worth of Christ. I pray that you would call the people to yourself. I pray that you would work, Holy Spirit, in such a way that Christ would be made much of and we, your people, would be reminded of how gracious you are and what is this holy call to which we have been called. I pray all these things in, in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, last Sunday, my, uh, my family and I were away um, at my father-in-law's 30th work anniversary at his church. And uh, he's been the pastor there at his one church for 30 years. And uh, it was amazing to see the church is large, it's healthy, it's flourishing, it's gospel. And uh, in the foundation hour, which is the church's equivalent to a Sunday uh, school uh, classroom, my father-in-law, Bob, uh, before the service, got to share with us seven important takeaways or emphases for his church to continue on and practice after he retires without him that he has learned to be important over the years. And one of the main points in his seven points was an emphasis on expository preaching. It's a type of preaching that we seek to practice and embrace here at Parkview Church. And um, expository preacher, if you're unfamiliar with what that is, it's it's just typically where a church works through a a book of the Bible, uh, one at a time, verse by verse, and takes the point of the passage as the main point of the message. Uh, Bob in that time of sharing, went on to talk about how the pulpit over the years for his church through the method of expository preaching has served as the primary tool in which his church has been formed and shaped by Christ. The Sunday morning... um, Sunday school was really amazing. They did some pretty amazing things. There's about 130 people in the class. And uh, during one moment in the class, um, they allowed together... Recited this this definition of a of a theological term called um, justification. I geek out on things like that, by the way. Excuse me. Um, justification uh, basically is 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 a definition that helps us understand what it means to receive the grace of God through faith in Christ. And and from this recitation of justification, the church went on to get as a classroom to talk about how they were allowing that gospel to form and shape their identity as people and then convict them and move them into love and situations that they are confronted with in life. 
And I was, um, I was, I was awestruck, man. It was really powerful for me to see what happens to a church when it faithfully, over the years, without resolve, turns to God and his word in order to know him and follow the Savior. Worship was great. We sung this one song. I sang aloud, and as I was worshiping, I couldn't help but think of you. I was praying for you. I longed to be with you. to be up here preaching to you, feeding to you the word so that you would grow into this. They were my people, you know, they're, they're my spiritual people, but you're my people, my flock, the elders' flocks. As I worshiped and prayed for you, I prayed that you would grow into the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and have a love and desire for his word. And you would grow in gospel maturity to know the scriptures and thus discover God, how beautiful he is, how rich he is, how merciful he is, how fulfilling he is, how satisfying he is, that our church would grow up into Christ our head to go on to produce great gospel things as he already is doing. And this morning, by God's grace, he has led us to yet another text to do exactly this. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. And if you're following along, you'll see up there in the screens that I've titled this sermon, Knowing and Living Before the Holy and Merciful God. We typically work through three points. Uh, from text and the three points that are going to come to you this morning are in the forms of questions. And those three questions this morning are this. Number one, who is God? Sorry, what is God? That's, that's point number one. Number one, what is God? Number two, who is God? And number three, why Jesus? What is God? Who is God? Why Jesus? We're going to begin our time by reading the text up front again, together. Again, Exodus chapter 3. Verses 1 through 12. We're going to read. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him from the bush, saying, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. 
I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Egypt or children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. We are super thankful for it. Right now we're moving to point number one, and I'd like to answer the question, what is God? Well, as this, this chapter here begins for us um, as a church, and we begin to interrogate it, it's, it's important to remember the narrative that we have been reading together and studying to, in this book. If you look down in the text there, this story picks up by pricking our memory um, concerning what has happened to Moses thus far in the story by telling us where he is as he's working for his father, the priest of Midian. He is indeed in Midian. If you remember uh, back to last week, Moses, after getting into some trouble in Egypt and killing a man while he was there, ended up escaping from the land, fleeing for his life because Pharaoh had found out what he had done. And so Moses last week arrived in Midian. And after a few um, favorable moments, Moses eventually found favor with the people, got married to this woman there named Zephorah, ended up working for her dad, Jethro, as a shepherd. And in Acts chapter 7, it says that Moses actually worked there in Midian for 40 years before the events of this chapter occurred. Acts chapter 7 verse 30 says this, now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in the bush. And so Moses, after building for himself a life and story of messiness and sin in Egypt, after escaping the land, finally over some time, gets his act together, moves into a new season of life, finds himself a spouse, gets married, finds for himself a decent job, and on one seemingly ordinary day, while he's at work out in a field, up in a mountain caring for sheep as a shepherd, he encounters the burning bush. And uh, if you look there in the text, the word or phrase that the author uses to describe what's in the bush is uh, the angel of the Lord. Uh, many people are uncertain um, as to what this phrase or uh, term means. They uh, kind of overcomplicate it. But the text here is, is, is pretty straightforward. Verse 4 says, if you look there, God called to him out of the bush. In other words, the angel of the Lord here in this story is none other than God himself. And God also in verse 4, if you look, says this, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And the Lord said, don't come near. Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you're standing is holy ground. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I was out camping with my buddies this week on a Friday night. 
And uh, one of the guys who joined us was this good old country boy. He, uh, he really knew how to make, make a fire, and so he made for us this awesome fire, this crazy fire. Uh, it was burning, and it was bright. We were all sitting around. All seven of us were sitting around eating and laughing and, and drinking and enjoying life. And uh, as I was preparing to preach this sermon, <laughs> I couldn't help but think of this story here. It was dark out. I was mesmerized by the fire. If you've ever been in front of one, you'll know what that's like. It was glowing up. It was all lit up and bright. And as I was looking at this flame, I was thinking to myself, what if I was out here alone in the wilderness, all alone? And as I was looking at this flame, a voice came from the flame saying, James, James. I'd run. I'd run. Uh, I'd probably feel like a little boy and and run for the hills. That would be really, really freaky. I was imagining it. I was freaked out myself, and it didn't even happen. But um, anyways, if you look at this text, Moses doesn't run. Moses doesn't run. But I do want to show you what he indeed does instead. If you look at the text after he hears the voice, he hits the ground and covers up his face. The text says that Moses was afraid to look at God. You got to understand what's happening here in this picture. Here we have, my brothers and sisters, an an ordinary man, a sinful man, murderer, ex-murderer, on an ordinary day, doing an ordinary job, having a God moment. Where God, on this ordinary day, with this ordinary man, decides to intervene into his life and take supernatural uh, initiative to get Moses' attention. All for the sake of revealing himself to Moses. This instance here that we're looking at is the very instance that's going to go on to change the rest of Moses' life. This is Moses' conversion story. This is where Moses met God and his life changed forever. From this moment on, Moses will never be the same. Our denomination actually has this confession and asks the same question that we're asking here in this first point. It's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And in question number four, the question is, what is God? The answer is this. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. In other words, no one can see God. However, in this fire event, we have displayed for us some of these very attributes If you look there in verse 2, the the very thing that's special about this fire that makes it unique is that the bush was burning, but the branches weren't withering. They weren't weren't being consumed. In other words, the fire here in the bush was not dependent on the bush for its energy source to burn. One man named Sinclair Ferguson said this, this fire here in the bush was a most pure fire. It was a fire that was nothing but fire. A fire that was not a compound of other energy sources, but one that had its own energy source in itself. God here was displaying displaying himself to Moses. He was revealing his self-sufficiency. 
This is none other than the creator Lord. There's this rapper from Westminster Theological Seminary. I like that type of music. For those of you who don't, it kind of reads like a poem. I'm going to read it to you. And this is what this young man said. To speak of God in need would be absurd. As Tozer said it, need is a creature word. Worthy of authentic worship. We can't add to God. He's already perfect. All of life, the living God is the source. So to create, he needed no resource. Oh, how we love this profound discussion that God made all things out of nothing. It pleased him to create by shouting into existence every lake and mountain. He sustains all things, a gracious fountain. But all of this did not add anything to God. In himself, he has all power and might. In himself, he is the fountain of life. With no lack, none else can give to thee. You are fulfilled in your own self-sufficiency. In other words, without any resources but himself, God here is the uncaused one. And through the revelation of this fire, paired with the naming of the patriarchs to Moses here, Moses is able to understand who it was that he was standing before. This is none other than the holy God. The one who said to Abraham, the forefather in Genesis 17, I am God Almighty, therefore walk before me and be blameless. This is the first time in the, the story of the Bible that the word holy is used. Normally, fire in the scriptures refers to this, God's holiness. I've heard it said before that God's holiness endangers sinners because holiness is an attribute which is not passive, but rather an active force. A force that embraces all that conform to it and destroys all that offends it. This is what Moses understands. Here we have this sinful man standing before the holy God and here he's finally doing something right. What is he doing? He is falling down on his face, covering his face because he knows as a sinful man, he could not bear to stand the sight of the holy God. In other words, after beholding God's personal revelation to him, through the power of his word and the power of his deed, the right response for us as fallen men and women, sinful men and women in the holy God's presence is to fear and tremble before the Lord Almighty. We're talking about God here. And I think this is what we overlook in our day. This simple yet eternal truth that God is holy. Listen, God is so holy that Moses in chapter 33, when he asked to see the Lord's face, God said, no, no, Moses, you can't see my face. If you saw my face, you'd die. I think we forget that the Bible describes God as terrible. Not as in terrible as in evil or bad, but terrible as in holy and perfect and so holy and perfect that in all of his righteousness and perfection and light that he indeed is the unapproachable one and that he does not tolerate sin or evil. It cannot stand in his presence without being destroyed. Do you remember what happened in, in Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu when they went into the temple and tried to make sacrifice to God half-heartedly? God struck them with fire dead. This is how serious the holiness of God is. 
This is how weighty the person of God is. This is what the Holy Spirit reveals and does in us. It reveals God's righteousness. It reveals, he reveals God's greatness. He reveals God's power and his rule and authority and perfection. He reveals through the scriptures that there is no other God besides the Lord Almighty. And it humbles us. This attribute of God, of his holiness, humbles us to hit our knees as sinners to tremble with reverence before his holy throne. It's the very thing that sets us up to receive appropriately the grace and mercy of God offered through Christ. We're going to be humbled before we can receive the Savior because if we're not, the Savior won't be the one. Saints, when we come to church, this is who you're before. When you sit and when you stand down, stand, stand up, it, it, this is what we're doing. We're standing before the holy God, the one who in heaven, myriads upon myriads of angels are bowing down and worshiping before, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And those heavenly creatures with wings are hiding their faces. And the sobering fact is this. It's that uh, some of you take this lightly and not at all, or not at all. And it's merciful that God hasn't stricken you dead. You're in a dangerous place and you don't know it. In fact, you might even be in judgment uh, because... Uh, God, through your hardness of heart, might have handed you over to your sin. How do you know if this is you? Uh, if you're at a place where your sin doesn't bother you, uh, if you're at a place where your spiritual life is half-hearted or means nothing to you. If you're not truly and actively convicted by the holiness of God with your life, oh, I'm, my heart's breaking because there's some of you here in this room that actually describes you. You, you forget this. A day of judgment's coming. You're going to stand before the Holy One. So I'm trying to be merciful and tell you that it's coming before it's too late. You can call yourself a Christian and come to church. That means nothing. Talking about living a holy life for God. And, I, and, and it's, 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 it's moving because you can't change your own heart. It's going to take a miracle to happen. The Holy Spirit has to work. You have to actually search yourself and see your sin to be humbled before God. You can't try to be a better person. It's not going to change a thing. And others of you God, here, God has been merciful to. And it's apparent in, in those faithful saints' lives who fear and tremble before this holy God, who love him, who are not perfect, but sincerely trying to love him and live their life for him who know that without the mercy of Christ, they die. But because Christ has been given 
This great gift of salvation has been given. They in exchange give all they had their whole entire life to the Holy One. Repentance and acknowledging of this holy God is the saving gift. So here's the discerning question to help you answer whether or not you actually know God indeed if you are a Christian. Are you with fear and trembling seeking to live a holy life before the holy God? Does your sin humble you? Does God's holiness cause you to approach him with reverent fear? Are you seeking to live a life that abides in Christ and trembles at his word? Do you hate your sin? Do you love righteousness? Do you long for things that are pure and noble, upright and just and holy? Or does the thought of God, this holy God, produce in you, uh, ah, whatever, you know, like church is good, God is good, my whole life, ah, he's not worth it. Going to church is enough for me because I could just add that to the list of good deeds and that's good enough because I, in fact, I'm good enough and I'm saying, no, you're not. You're not a good person. The Bible says that there are no good people. Romans chapter three, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can harden your heart or you can soften your heart and beg for mercy and the goodness of the gospel that God gives mercy to the beggar. I'm asking you this question, saints, this morning. What does the thought of the Almighty God actually do to you? Today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your hearts if you hear the mercy of God. In order to arrive at Christ, and I'm going to take you there in the second point now, and hopefully ultimately in third, the third point, in order to admire and receive Christ, you must first reconcile this thought of your sinful nature standing before the Holy God. And then if you've been humbled, you're ready. Then if you've been humbled, you are ready. And God is eager to send the Son. I'm going to take you there now. That was point number one. What is God? He's holy. And I'd like to now show you and move you to point number two and remind you, who is God? really encouraged by the second point uh, because uh, this is where the grace of the gospel begins to be unveiled through the character of God here displayed in the story. Last week, we had a guest preacher, Andres Ares. He preached this, the sermon before me in uh, Exodus chapter two. And he finished the time by describing what during this time was Israel's condition in Egypt. Chapter two, verse 23 and 24 says this. During those days, those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry from rescue, from slavery, came up to God. And God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What did God know? Well, if you look at verse seven in our text, it says it exactly. God knew their suffering. God knew their suffering. And so here we have a picture of the holy God, the perfect God who needs nothing. Seeing his people from heaven above who are in a sense in need of everything. And in verse eight, God goes on to say this in light of them. 
I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, the holy God of heaven cares for and longs to bless his people with healthy, good, flourishing life. To deliver them out of their sufferings. And the thing further about God that we see here in this text is that the God of heaven not only knows about things down here as he's there, but he sees all of his people's suffering in detail. And the text informs us here that when God's people cry out to him in prayer for mercy and say, God, would you please help me and rescue me? It provokes the Lord to act. The good news of the gospel is that God's heart is moved for his people when they suffer. To be what? To be compassionate and to be merciful and kind so much as to ultimately do something. God of heaven in this text is displayed as being sympathetic towards his people. This is the significance here, saints, of the burning bush. God descends from heaven, heaven, enters into creation. And while he's in creation, he is not dependent on anything to sustain himself. The bush here represents God's redemptive power and plan to save, that he's going to be the one to do it. He's going to condescend from heaven and come here to this earth and not be dependent on anyone or anything but his own redeeming power to save his people. Here in the story, the Lord sees Israel suffering. He promises that he's going to respond, reach down from heaven through miracle signs and wonders and deliver his people from this land of slavery, from the heavy hand of the Egyptians. And notice, if you look there in the text, he's actually speaking in past tense. In light of the future events of the Exodus, he says, I have come down which reveals his sovereign plan that from eternity past, God has written the story of his people, of mankind indeed, and has already determined the future. He needs no one or nothing to save but himself. And this is what we forget about our holy, uh, infinite, and supernatural God in all of our sufferings, that God doesn't need to make sense of things to bring resolve to the hardship that we're going through. He indeed is supernatural and so we look at our situation and our suffering and said, this can only be a possible resolve if this, this, or this happens. And God says, no, but you forgot me, ex nihilo. I created everything out of nothing. He longs to save and will save his people in the most supernatural way. And he fights for his people. Isaiah chapter 30 says this, the Lord longs to be gracious to you and show compassion. Chapter 45, God says, turn to me and be saved for I am God and there is no other. And then King David in Psalm chapter 25 prays during his hardship and suffering and says this, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Let me not be put to shame. Remember your mercy and your steadfast love according to your steadfast love. Please remember me for the sake of your own goodness. Good and upright is the Lord for your name's sake, O Lord. Pardon my guilt for it's great. 
Who is the man or woman that fears the Lord? The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. Moses here is becoming a friend of God. God is giving his covenant promise of salvation to the sinful man by grace. To include him in the covenant promise that one day Israel would be a great nation by and through God's own redemptive power. My brothers and sisters, through Christ, the promise comes to us even greater and even more. We serve the same covenant keeping of God who is sovereign and has already written the story of salvation from eternity past, which means as you suffer and know your sorrow and your specific circumstance, nothing is hanging on the edge and you don't have to wonder if God's gonna come through for you. If he knows the next chapter, he does know the next chapter. It's already been written and his cause is for you and indeed for us, all of God's people. That's his heart and compassion for the church. Revelation chapter five displays this beautiful picture of this golden bowl sitting on a throne before God. God's leaning over it and in the golden bowl are incense and the incense are the prayers of the saints which produce an aroma and they go up into his nostrils and when he smells it, he's pleased. That's how good our prayers in our suffering smell to God. And they are going to provoke him to work if they haven't yet already for you. They will be answered for you in Jesus Christ on the great day of deliverance. And so maybe your suffering will be extinguished in this life. And I pray by faith that you pray by faith and that we together would receive those promises fulfilled. But if he doesn't, he ultimately will. One day there will be no more tears or suffering or pain or sickness, death or disease in heaven. That's your promise. You can wait by faith as you suffer. Remember like Stephen in the book of Acts when he was martyred? Remember what God did to him as he suffered? He didn't take away his suffering, but Stephen, as he was being stoned to death, had this vision of, of glory and of Christ in heaven as he was dying. And Jesus was not sitting on his throne, but he was standing. It's a picture of the king of heaven getting off this throne and devoting all of his attention to his suffering servant. This is God for you in your suffering. He gets up off his throne and devotes all of his attention on you and he gives you power and strength to endure until you inherit glory. Stephen prayed for his enemies who were stoning him in that moment and he entered into heaven with faith. I just want to know if you're suffering. I know everyone's suffering in their own way. I'd urge you to cry out to the Lord because he's compassionate towards his people. I guess the reading of the scriptures is most appropriately, it's just the most powerful thing for us to do. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined his ear to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of my miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man and woman who makes the Lord their trust. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. O oh God, do not 
delay. That was point number two. I'd like to finish now on point number three. I know that's a hard transition, but it's a beautiful text and it's meant to provoke our thoughts. Point number three as we close is this. Why Jesus? So we had what is God? We had who is God? And now we're asking that great question, why Jesus? Through the story, I hope that you have sensed the fallen human condition of mankind in this world. In point one, I tried to expose to you the sinful estate of us. And in point two, I just tried to show you that the world indeed is also suffering. And the reason why we finish with Jesus is because he is the resolve to both of these great things. Just like Moses here is not encountering a new God, but a fuller revelation of the one who has already revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus comes to us in the New Testament as the full picture of this Lord. Colossians chapter 3 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The fallen condition factor of this story is that Moses, as he's before the burning bush, hides his face in guilt and shame because of his sin. And this is not unique to Moses. Indeed, this is what sin does to all of us. Do you remember what Adam and Eve did in the garden after they sinned against God? They ate off the tree, and the moment they sinned, they were filled with guilt and shame and tried to hide their naked bodies because they heard the presence of the Lord, their God, walking in the garden. This is what our sin does to us. It causes us to feel guilt and shame. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, provided because of his great love, a remedy to his rebellious creation's estate and sent his son, Jesus Christ. God, in all of his power, humbled himself and became a man and walked on this fallen earth, experiencing this broken world. And this is the significance of the cross. That Jesus lived a sinless life and died a sinful death on the cross on our behalf for our guilt and shame. And now by his perfect righteousness and blood, we can stand before God washed clean. You don't have to approach God's throne any longer in guilt or shame. You can be washed clean by the blood of the lamb. You who were once alienated from Christ have now, after discovering you indeed because of your sin, are naked, have been clothed by faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God the Father is pleased to exalt the saving work of his son and apply it to you. We no longer have to hide our faces from God. We don't have to be ashamed of our stories, of the sin we've committed, of the guilt we have, of the sin that we're currently in. If we turn to Christ, repent and say, oh God, save me, he will save you. And the beauty of this incarnate God is that not not only that he provided a uh, a resolve to the dilemma of sin, but as a man who suffered death on the cross, he became deeply familiar with our sufferings that are present here in relationships and also in all areas of the world. Therefore, our God, because of his humanity, is able to empathize with us in our weakness and weep when we weep. The Lord loves you. And if you're crying, he's crying with you. And if you have faith in the deliverer, his promise is that he will deliver you.
Jesus is how we know God's familiar to our pain. It's how we know he bears with us in our sin and weakness. And it's why we keep living on through what we're living through, which is our constant struggle with sin in this broken and suffering world. I guess I'll close now and ask you a question. And that question is this, is there anything in your life and story that produces in you shame? Is there any sin that you have committed that you think is too big for God to forgive? I'm wondering if in this season of life you can, you can get a sense for God's supernatural pursuit of you. I wonder if you're having a Moses moment or a God moment and you feel God has been trying to get your attention. This is how God produces salvation in people. So I could just clarify, the Lord Jesus Christ wants to save you. He wants to change your life to give you a burning bush moment and reveal with his light, Christ. Uh, for those of you who've never had a God moment, I pray that today would be the day. And for those of you who are Jesus Christ and belong to him, I pray that you would no longer feel naked and ashamed, but pardoned and set free because of the righteousness of Christ, which has been given to you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this service. It's very ordinary.